This program is brought to you by Emory University. It's, uh, it's great to be back here at Emory and uh, seeing all my old friends and colleagues again. I, I just feel like I don't have enough time to see and chat with all the people from my old days here. Um, so today, uh, actually, the, uh, Sally ended her talk with, a, with the perfect final sentence, not before her question and answer period, which was that maybe the tools drove the bones, maybe, but maybe the bones gave, and that's, that's a le leeway into my talk. And what I'm going to try to do is lay out, uh, this is mostly a theoretical talk. You'll see bits of empirical evidence as I go along. But I'm going to try to put together three pieces of aspects of humans that are often, OK, my, my animation has already failed me. Um, th three pieces uh, of uh, uh, patterns of human behavior that are often cited as being part of what sets humans apart from everybody else. So fancy cognition, we've already heard about uh, specialized brains. Large-scale cooperation differenti differentiates humans, at least in some groups, from the rest of uh, the primate world. And uh, culture and cultural evolution. And I'm really going to put the driver, the driving uh, force in this is going to be the emergence of cumulative cultural evolution. Gives rise to a process that's then going to lead to the other two things, to fancier cognition and bigger brains, which is going to also then lead to cooperation. Those two interact a little bit. So I'm going to put those together. And so in, in many ways, I'm going to provide a unified explanation for those uh, three Cs, culture, uh, culture, cognition, and cooperation. But I'm actually going to lead off by first just giving you some sense of how we can use the logic of natural selection and evolutionary theory to build a theory of culture, uh, how, we can, how we can theorize the psychological capacities that give rise to culture and cultural evolution. And one of the things I think is important about this and sometimes underappreciated is that once you begin to you build a theory of, a, of culture from, evolu from an evolutionary perspective, you dissolve the false and I think intellectual, intellectually destructive dichotomy between evolutionary explanations and cultural explanations. You put all evolutions, uh, all explanations uh, in the same framework and you can allow cultural evolutions, meaning evolutionary explanations with some component of social learning, against other kinds of evolutionary explanations and these can compete in the, f uh, in the same framework and then lead to cumulative process. Uh, malfunctioning mouse. Okay. Um, and then the second thing is I'm going to then go from that into how we get cumulative cultural evolution and how that can lead to fancier cognition and bigger brains and a bunch of interesting specialized aspects of human cognition, which it's difficult to explain otherwise. Uh, one of the things I'm going to argue is that you can't do proper evolutionary psychology unless you take into account this gene-culture interaction. And then finally, and this is the part that I may have to be briefer on if I don't get to it, is that this whole process is going to lead to an emergent phenomenon. I'm going to label it social norms, but it's, I'm not going to assume social norms into existence. In existence are going to spontaneously arise uh, from the processes that I'll lay out before that. And I think that the emergence of these norms can explain some of the peculiar aspects of human social psychology and our capacity to cooperate, cooperate in large groups. So before I get started, I'd like to set up the problem a little bit by pointing out that we're a special kind of cultural species in the sense that we're a tropical primate who long before the origins of agriculture had spread out to all the major ecosystems and continents except Antarctica. So we adapted from the, from the Arctic tundra to the malarial swamps of New Guinea, across seas to get to Australia, um, all with the same basic genetic endowment of a tropical primate. But in each of these places, we have adaptations that are purely cultural, which means they're acquired by growing up in a particular place. And so these include all kinds of knowledge of local materials, different kinds of weapons which vary by local group, 
uh, particular poisons, knowledge of the folk biology, what plants you can eat, what, pl what plants are poisonous, how you have to process the toxic plants to be able to eat them, the details of tracking the local animals, knowledge of weather patterns, how to remove toxins, all kinds of things like that, which would allow humans to adapt to the wide range of environments that we spread out to relatively rapidly with the same basic body plan. And I'll also just mention that the same group of foragers, without get talk getting into agriculturalists, have immensely variable social structure. So groups ranging from independent families or nearly independent families to groups of thousands. Some groups are egalitarian. Some groups have a hierarchical structure with big men that occasionally dominate political processes. There's foragers with hereditary chiefs with and without social classes. All that we get without even leaving foragers. Okay, so to build a theory of culture, our first step is to use evolutionary theory to generate hypotheses about how our minds would have ad adapted to best extract useful information from the minds of the other members of our social group. So this leads to, this can lead to the accumulation of a body of knowledge that transmits non-genetically. And so I'm talking about transmitted stuff, uh, beliefs, know-how, motivations, values, preferences, categories, emotional connections, all of these things can be, can be culturally transmitted. Now, in what's to come, I'm going to uh, emphasize one particular prong, which is particularly useful for thinking about how culture can be adaptive and how it can build the right tools and technologies for the current environment. But there's many prongs to this, and it's very important to, to, um, to build theories about how we actually make inferences about the observations that we, that, we, uh, that we see when we're observing and learning from other individuals. I'm not going to be, have time to get into that today, but I want to acknowledge that that's important. Um, so as a kind of thought experiment to get you thinking about this, so we want to apply the logic of natural selection to, to these mechanisms. So if you suppose that you're a, um, a migrant or a young individual in an environment and you want to figure out what to eat, there's sort of two strategies. So this, the typical strategy that we often find in non-human animals is an individual learning strategy. You, will, you go around and sample a little bit of the foods of different kinds, and if they don't make you sick, maybe you'll adopt it. If it tastes in the right way, you'll adopt it. You can use these taste cues. But you can see that this is costly, because you have to go around the environment, you have to try lots of different foods. Some of them might be toxic. Many of them are probably unprocessable, so, un unprocessable, so they're not very useful. Um, but, or you can try a, a cultural learning strategy, which would, would be to pick out the older, healthiest, most successful members of your group and eat whatever they eat. And you've, you've solved the problem in one step. You might not get the best possible diet, but you didn't have all that trial and error learning. So you can get a diet quickly. This also suggests something that I'm going to call content bias, which we should have attention for certain particular categories of, um, of things that we should be interested in. So in this case, it's food. I'll say more about this in a minute. So uh, the first prong in this approach of thinking about natural selection, adapting our minds to extract is called model-based learning. And here you're going to be particular about who you focus in on, selective about who you pay attention to. So you can pick those individuals most likely to have fitness-enhancing information. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that on the next slide, but I want to mention a couple other things which I, which I won't return to. The second thing there's been a lot of both now empirical work on and initially theoretical work. When I say theoretical, I usually mean mathematical modeling, development of evolutionary models that make predictions about this stuff. Um, so these two things are conformist transmission and blending transmission. So copying the majority actually turns out to be a smart thing to do. If the members of your group are all partially informed, everybody knows maybe, they, they know 60% of the time they know the right thing to do, 40% of the time they get it wrong. If you watch everyone else and copy the majority, you can have a 70 or 72% chance of getting it right just by using the majority. So. 
so conformist transmission can be adaptive. And you can, of course, combine conformist with this, with this other mechanism as well. And blending transmission is just to say, say you're trying to become the best arrow maker. You might pick the five most successful hunters and copy, uh, note the lengths of their arrows and then take the average. So this has a lot of advantages for the same reason that in statistics we take averages, because it, it averages out the error and you, you get a more uh, clearer signal. So those things have been studied and uh, there's varying amounts of evidence for both of those. Uh, recent studies by Miguel Rath and his colleagues show strong evidence for conformist transmission. Uh, content bias is that along these same lines of thinking, we should, we should imagine, well, we should expect people to uh, have mechanisms that cause them to attend to particular kinds of information uh, more than other kinds. So people should be particularly interested in food. Fire has probably been important for humans for a long time. So uh, Dan Fessler has argued that kids are particularly interested in fire. Artifacts, you have to learn about the details of artifacts. So we seem to have specialized cognition for that, which I'll say more about. We should be interested in living kinds. Obviously, surviving the environment as foragers, you need to know a lot about animals and plants. And so you should be interested in those. Uh, but you can even say more than that. If there's some, some information that is even more fitness valuable, like whether an animal is dangerous, we should be tuned in to, to remember that even more. So we can make predictions about the kinds of things our memory should be good at and what we can learn in one trial versus, versus having, needing more experience. And then finally, towards the end, I'm going to argue that we actually have a specialized psychology for learning norms and figuring out what the social rules are. So little kids assume the world's full of social rules. Once you have that assumption, then it's just a matter of figuring out what they are. Uh, and also social groups, which I won't talk about. So to say a little bit more about this model-based selective cultural learning, uh, the idea is that both children and adults should preferentially tend to some individuals, some members of the, the environment. And they should use cues to figure out who to focus their attention to uh, for the purposes of imitation. So some cues could be skill. If you're trying to become a good hunter, say you're in a foraging group, it would benefit you to look at the, the best hunter in the group or the best arrow maker in the group. Or at least make some distinction amongst variances in skill. So pay attention to the more competent individuals, the more reliable individuals. Um, Skill and success are different, right? So, so skill would be something like how good an archer you are versus success is a, is a more indirect proxy, like how much meat do you bring home? It doesn't tell you exactly how it was done, but it, it's, it's really sort of the goal. Um, uh, you could also use other people's opinions. So everyone's partially informed about who the good people are to pay attention to, who have the really good information. So by attending to other people's attention, especially the attention of more informed people, uh, you can preferentially direct your learning toward those most likely to have useful information. So this predicts that young children, for example, should be geared into others' attention, and then they should preferentially direct their imitation towards those who get paid attention to by others. The same thing goes for sociolinguistic cues. So prestigious individuals tend to hold the floor. Um, there's a bunch of cues that you can follow to figure that out if you don't have other information. And there's ethological patterns that go along with these differences. Um, I won't have too much time to say any more about that, but we've written a lot about these different ecological patterns. We have a few papers coming out on it. Um, so going through a wide range of literature from across the social science, we find that humans are great at learning all kinds of things through, through these kind of imitative observational learning processes. So food preferences. If you want to convince a, a kid to change his internal preference for a food, you, uh, the best thing you can do is not give him incentives, not teach him about the health quality of the food, but to sit him down at a table with kids slightly older who really like the food. They'll eat the food, he'll see them move it, and then next you'll find that that kid will request that food next time he comes, he'll eat more of it and select it as honor. He actually moves his internal state as a consequence of this. Uh, it's important for mate choice, ad adoption of technology. This is well known by rural sociologists. Uh, word meaning seems to transmit that way, dialect. 
You can, there's a long line of research on the transmission of altruism by this kind of modeling process in uh, developmental psychology in the late 60s and 70s. Economic strategies, there's a bunch of research in, in recently in the last 10 years in economics showing that. Suicide is one of my favorite ones, um, just because it's, it's clearly not adaptive to, to imitate suicide, but there's, there are several lines of evidence. One is that suicide spread through social networks, but there's also this work by Stack in which he shows that the more prestigious a celebrity is when they commit suicide, there's a big bump in, in suicides that, and these aren't people who are going to commit suicide anyway because there's no, there'd have to be a then drop, a subsequent drop, so you can detect that they're not suicides that would have happened anyway. And these match on sex and ethnicity, which, which are two of the other cues. Um, so those biases fit. There's also an age pattern there. Uh, beliefs about invisible agents and opinions. There's a long line of research in social psychology on opinion transmission that supports this, these ideas. Uh, and, and I started to mention these other cues, which is to say, we should use cues of sex, ethnicity, age, health, and affect in order to tune your social learning. So for example, if the sexual division of labor between males and females is at all old, males should tend to copy males and females should tend to pay attention to females. Because you need to get those ideas, beliefs, and values that are most likely going to be uh, useful to you when you reach some later, later stage in life. Um, age is important for two reasons. So one is children can scaffold themselves up by paying attention to slightly older children. So if you're a five-year-old and you want to become a good hunter, you probably wouldn't do very well to, to copy the best hunter who's probably about 36 years old. You do better to copy the best seven-year-old, and then copy the best nine-year-old, and then the best 13-year-old. So you can gradually scaffold up your skills so they're, they're appropriate to your age. And you don't need any help that way, so it's a form of self-scaffolding. The other way in which age is useful is that not everyone gets to be old. Natural selection takes its toll in the process, and the, the elderly have shown that they at least know enough to get to be elderly. Not everyone gets to be there. So that can be a source or a cue of knowledge. Uh, we've, there's also health and affect, which I'll, I'll skip, and, and ethnicity. Okay, so um, one of the things that's been really nice in the last 10 years, so when we started making these predictions at around 2000, uh, there wasn't, we, had, we scattered the literature and we sort of assembled what we could, Francisco, Gil, White, and I. But then since then, there's been this huge boom of interest in selective imitation in uh, developmental psychology. And there's now good evidence that young children will use the competence of models to preferentially imitate word meaning and tool use. They use cues of reliability that they're tuned into. They're tuned into pride displays or confidence displays. They're tuned into the affect of the model. So does this model seem happy when he's doing it? Does he like it? Um, tuned into the uh, age of the model, so younger kids copy older kids. And they use ethnic cues to, to acquire both uh, food preferences and that's the only one I can think of. All right, so this is an experiment from, from coming out of uh, our labs at UC, uh, UBC. Um, so this is a um, uh, collaborative work with Sue Birch. And just to give you a little sense of what this experiment, so uh, little kids come into the lab and they watch a video. And on the video, there were two models. These are people they could potentially imitate. And the two models are playing with two of these horse toys kind of hopping around. And into the room walks two observers. These, are, these uh, observers are going to attend to one or the other of the models. So they walk in, they look at both, and then they preferentially watch one of the models. And then that goes on for 10 seconds. It stops, so it's a fairly brief cue. And then each of the models appears and makes one of two food choices, uh, uses an artifact in one of two ways, selects one of two beverages, and labels an object in one of two ways. And when you, when you put all the trials together, um, you find that children are twice as likely to copy the model who just had the, little bit, had the greater attention from the other, other individuals in the room. 
if you just look at the artifact domain, so here the attention queue is in the domain of an artifact. So they're using an artifact at the time. So in this case, it's 14 times more likely to pick the model that was attended to in the domain of artifact. And, and the robust is just the, two, the food and the drink. So kids will preferentially pick the, the drink or the food of the model who was attended to by other members of the social group. So this just gives you a sense of the kind of predictions you can make and how you can test them uh, with some developmental psychology. All right, now that's, so that gives us uh, some sense of the foundation for uh, building a, a, a theory of culture uh, from an evolutionary foundation. But then I want to ask, um, what's really special about human culture? So lots of animals seem to have some form of social learning. And uh, one interesting fact about this is a lot of the, the application of evolutionary theory to humans has taken models originally developed for animals, non-human non animals, and applied it to humans. But this is a case, there's more increasing amounts of work, uh, Franz has talked about some of the primate work, but work in rats and starlings and other social learners. And this is a case where models developed in the 1980s to study human culture is now being applied successfully, actually, to the study of the social learning rules used in non-humans. So that's neat, and so we can use the same models to tell things about other species. But what seems to be particular about human culture is that it accumulates over generations. And what I mean by cumulative cultural evolution is that you get a process in which information gradually accumulates to a point where no, no single individual could reinvent that in his lifetime. So I don't just mean any time you put two steps together or two tools together. It's got to be something that's sufficiently complicated that no single individual could figure it out. Now, some modeling done by Boyd and Richardson in 1996 suggests that there's a, a fitness valley or fitness barrier. So you can have a little bit of social learning, but it's not particularly valuable until there's a lot of cultural stuff in the world to learn. So there has to be a lot of information out there to, to pay the cost to add the next bit of brain tissue or whatever you need to be able to increase your amount of social learning, your, your memory storage. So there's this valley, which we need a valley, right? Because this cumulative cultural evolutionary process is not very common in nature. So you need something to explain why it's not, not all kinds of species have this kind of runaway cumulative cultural evolution process we have. But then once you're able to cross the valley, the whole thing blasts off and becomes autocatalytic. And I'll, and I'll explain that in a minute. All right, um, to explain that, I'm gonna, this is a very simple diagram. Um, here the top row, this is supposed to represent a generation. I, the, the circles are individuals. And the um, tracking M, which is just a statistic, it's the, the average amount of memory used by the population. So here, uh, nobody has anything stored in their cultural memory, um, except for this one fellow who invents something. He invents some useful adaptive uh, uh, trait. So this is our next generation. And so he passes down his adaptive trait to this guy and to another individual. So a second one gets it. And then somebody else invents something. And you can see the memory went up a bit. And then there's another generation, a couple more. Uh, the trait one gets passed down, trait one gets passed down to here, now trait two is getting passed down. This individual has two things in memory, trait two, oh, somebody else invents something. That's the last thing that gets invented. So then you go down to the next generation, memory's increased even more. All these individuals have two adaptive traits in memory. We go again, now lots of individuals have two, one individual has three adaptive traits in memory, they get passed down. Now lots of individuals have three traits in memory. Now if they didn't have brains that could store three traits in memory, these guys could only have two traits in memory. So they'd, they'd be at a disadvantage. They'd have one less useful trait. And you can see just in this little toy example, you've increased the, the memory required by a factor of 20 from, from 0.4 to 2.4. So it has a quick impact on needing a lot of memory. And this stuff will just begin to accumulate. Every time somebody invents something new, it's added to a pile of information that keeps in increasing. 
So what this is going to do is um, you cross the cumulative evolutionary threshold, and whatever brain capacity you have to acquire, store, and organize cultural information is going to max out. And then there's going to be a selective pressure on genes to make brains better at acquiring, storing, and organizing culture information. So genes go. They make brains a little bit better at that, then culture fills it up immediately, right? Because culture is fast compared to genes. So you're going to have this constant pressure pushing brains to get bigger to put more of this adaptive cultural information that it can accumulate. And if you're wondering, well, how does this cultural information get to be adaptive? In the first part, I showed you how if you use this selective transmission, you copy more successful people, more prestigious people, you use these cues, you get more adaptive information. That'll automatically generate it just by selective transmission. Actually works a lot like natural selection, except in cultural evolution. So this is going to select for um, bigger brains, a better ability to acquire cultural stuff, higher fidelity transmission, um, improving your model selection a better ability to store and organize cultural stuff. And actually, it creates a pressure to be more sociable. So once you can access information from other individuals, they have a new resource that didn't previously exist. So you want to be around other individuals so you can learn from them. You can acquire stuff. And so this is a powerfully autocatalytic process. This is going to create the kind of thing we need to create the human outlier. Whatever theory you have about human cognition, we've, we've talked about the brain thing, it's got to be autocatalytic. It's got to run away. So if it doesn't have runaway dynamics, it's prob probably not the right theory. Um, all right. So we've talked about a bunch of these, so I'm just kind of bouncing off other talks. So uh, that head's going to expand under the pressure of this building up supply of cultural information. It's going to run up against our pelvis constraints. Female pelvis even gets twisted a little bit to get that infant head through. We have the premature birth that we talked about, where you've got to pop that head out while it's before the, the skull forms, and um, uh, potentially that fourth trimester. Make sense. Um, a continued uh, uh, more gestation outside the womb, uh, and possibly more dense wiring, or whatever selection can do to pack more information in there, right? It's got a fixed space now, but there's this pressure. If you can learn more stuff, you're better adapted. Um, and as you see, we're going to get some pieces of predictably specialized cognition, and actually some interesting physical effects as well. Okay, so I'm going to just give you, I just have time for one quick ex experiment to sort of demonstrate this. This is not our experiment. This comes from the Leipzig lab. So um, they took a battery of physical and uh, sociocognitive tasks. They used two and a half year old children, chimps and orangutans. Now, uh, Laura was talking last night about the concerns of comparing kids to non human primates. I think I'm going to actually make a justification in this case uh, to adult non human primates. It seems kind of unfair. Um, I don't know, unfair to who, but. Uh, the, uh, the kid, in this case, the, ki the kids could get some cultural tools. So these kids would get a powerful numbering system that's a product of long-term cultural evolution. So you want to get these kids before they inherit, culturally inherit that powerful system that would give them an edge on some of the tests. So that's one justification. Otherwise, you've got to find people who don't have a numbering system, which is possible. But, um, all right, anyway, so if, if my prediction is, is uh, um, true, then uh, the, the human should do particularly well in the social learning, and we shouldn't expect them to be particularly better on, in other tasks. So there's, here's a series of the tasks. So you have uh, physical tasks, so space, quantities, and causality, and social tasks, social learning, communication, and theory of mind. So if I'm right, they should do well in social learning. That's the tail that's wagging the dog here. And, uh, and theory of mind, to the degree that theory of mind leads to better social learning, there's also theory of mind for Machiavellian trickery. So in, in this account, there's a selection pressure on this kind of theory of mind from extracting useful information from others' minds. 
So in a, it's a first pass, so here's the physical domain. We have our human competitor, chimp competitor, orang competitor, pretty much the same. So kids and chimps, kids and these apes are about the same. Here we see this, the social domain, the kids seem to be doing better. Okay, so there's a difference there. Chimps and orangs are about the same. So a little bit more detail. So now let's break it down. Here's the physical area. Again, no difference. So it's not that humans, these two-year-olds anyway, um, aren't generally smarter than, than apes. Uh, space, quantities, and causality. Okay, fine, now social learning, the kids whip the apes. Uh, the kids are maxing out at 100% there. Communication, eh, pretty similar. In theory of mind, the kids are doing better, but they're, they're not doing as, as well as the social, social learning. So this seems like, at least in this experiment, the big difference is the social learning that's, that sets the two-year-olds apart. Now this, should, of course, you should have a puzzle, because everyone has this intuition, which I, I don't seem to have for some reason, uh, that we are really smart, and, uh, and so whatever your answer, it has to make us really smart. But I have a different re thing that makes us really smart, is I think we're smart because we inherit big body of culturally pre-solved solutions. Uh, so it's the software that makes us smart, not the hardware. The smartness isn't in the hardware. So let me give you some examples. So I mentioned the numbering system. So um, small-scale societies like the one I lived with, the Machiganga count, uh, one, two, three, and four more. Um, probably lots of human societies throughout human history just had that same counting system. We inherit a system in which we can count to infinity, uh, the decimal, the, the, the pieces of our mathematical system were assembled over a very long period of time. There's actually nice books on the evolution of, of math. The number zero was only invented twice in human history, zero the placeholder. It was invented by the Mayans and in India. So we just get this for free. So we get it, we can do all kinds of neat things once we get it. If you compare kid um, analog numeracy to, to, to non-human primates, it seems to be about the same. We don't really get the edge until we get the culturally built system. Spatial cognition, uh, Steve, Stephen Levinson's work, uh, human language, some human languages have three different coordinate systems, but other human languages have two or sometimes one coordinate system. When you have all three, it gives you more flexibility. Now, if you have one, you turn out you have a different set of cognitive specializations that are a product of um, keeping track of north, south, east, and west all the time everywhere you are. But that's just another example. We also uh, inherit cultural categories for things like color. So we have 11 basic color terms. Some societies have two. We inhabit, uh, or people in small-scale societies get a wide range of very useful species categories, which once you have those, you can really ingest the new knowledge because you have all these nice categories to put it in. If you don't have those, like Western children, then it's really hard to learn new information about the natural world because you don't have any good categories. You, you learn something about a, a robin and you put it in your bird category, and it's just general bird information. Uh, the wheel. So you often see Gar Gary Larson cartoons with um, Neanderthalish looking creatures operating wheels, but actually the wheel was tough to invent. Comes relatively late in human history, only invented in Eurasia. Doesn't appear in Australia, doesn't appear in the Americas. Um, so actually a pretty hard thing to invent. Once you have it though, you not only have wheels for carts, but you have all kinds of other concepts. Wheels for mills, and you can begin to extend the concept. But you can't use metaphorical cross-domain extension of concept until you have the first thing. Uh, same thing here, so elastically stored energy. The, I'm drawing here on, on um, ethnographers who argue that Australian Aboriginal technology lacks any technology that uses elastically stored energy. So this is the energy that's stored in a bow and that concentrates the force of the energy on the arrow at, at a single point. And once you have that, you can build all kinds of neat snares, you can build bows, you can make musical instruments. But if you don't have the concept of elastically stored energies, there's a whole bunch of technologies you don't get. And you can also solve new problems once you have the concept of elastically stored energy that you couldn't have solved before because you have this pre-built idea, well, I can store energy in the flex of that thing. Um, anyway, so that this, this list is a very long list, actually. 
Uh, time accounting is another example. Okay, so we, we just had a nice, nice talk on tools. So here are some tools. And uh, so let's look at the first one up there. Is uh, okay. So those are Australian Aboriginal tools, circa 1700. So these are completely modern foragers, Australians. And these tools are Upper Paleolithic tools. So this is post that the, the revolution that wasn't um, the human revolution that wasn't 35,000. And then we can look at some of these tools. And uh, these are Mousterian tools, typically associated with Neanderthals, although some anatomically moderns make them. And then I asked my undergraduates, okay, so which, who do these tools look like? Where do you think they're from? And my undergraduates always say, uh, they look like Mousterian tools. They look most like Mousterian. So who made, who made those tools? They're made by Neanderthals. Oh, sorry, there's also old one. Forget that. Who made those tools over there? Tasmania, circa 1700. So these are actually the two identical populations until, until 10,000 years ago, 12,000 years ago when the Bass Strait flooded. So genetically identical populations. The Bass Strait floods, they split. The Tasmanians have complex technology that looks just like the Australian Aborigines. But then we can see in the archaeological record, bone tools disappear, uh, and the tools get less complex over time until in 1643 when Abel Tausman arrives. Um, we have tools that look like this, and they look like the same tools that Neanderthals make. Um, it's an island isolated for 10,000 years from the rest of the trade networks and information networks in Australia. And right across the Bass Strait in, in Victoria, we have the control group because we had the 10,000 years the Australians were having, and they had lots of technological advancement, very complex clothing. The Tasmanians didn't have sewn clothing, bone tools, fancy stuff in Australia, but not right across the river in this group that's genetic, you know, the same stock, basically. So anyway, this is, this is, this is a, a stark example of a basic theoretical fact. So one of the problems is, is well, not to say unkind things about paleoanthropologists, but they, they don't pay a lot of attention to the models of cultural evolution. Uh, and it's very easy to show, and there's a wide range of models that show this, uh, that the, the rate and maximum stable amount of adaptive cultural knowledge, in other words, tool complexity, depends on the size and interconnectedness of the population. Large populations that are well interconnected, meaning the information is flowing amongst the links. You can think of it as a social network or a population where people are just sharing information. Uh, has lots of advantages. So just more people means there's more chance for individuals to have good ideas. And then if it's interconnected, they can move around and, and different ideas can meet each other and then create new recombinants. Uh, so I've actually had a paper that just came out where I um, constructed a model with sociality and uh, uh, inventiveness as two parameters. And so sociality is how many other people you're, you'll share information with. And inventiveness is how good you are at figuring out good ideas. And what you find when you just put the model together, and it's a really a more, it's a consequence of a general network property, but that sociality is much more important than, in, than intelligence, which is in my model a parameter for how inventive you are, how much you can figure it out on your own, right? It's, it's non-linearly, dramatically more important to be social than it is to be smart. And you end up with, with fancier technology. So to make it stark, if you have two groups, and one group has really complex tools, and one group has simple tools, and you want to say, who is smarter? Who's better at figuring stuff out? The answer is, it's impossible to know. Because this group could be, and I, I have a demonstration in my paper, 10 times less smart, meaning they're 10 times less likely an individual to figure out a solution to a problem than this group. But if this group is a little bit more social, people have four or five links to other people instead of one or two, 
then this group will have much more complex technology than that other group because you get these nonlinear effects from sharing information and recombination. Which is, we have, our minds are not well constructed for thinking about things like networks and slow evolutionary processes, so you have to lean on the, on the formal modeling. Uh, so this, this makes you worry about the conclusions that are drawn about Neanderthals and, and uh, pre-Upper Paleolithic um, anatomically modern humans. And it also makes you worry about this. Sometimes you get a sense that uh, technology only gets better, right? But I think a much more simpler, you know, applying these models to the kind of data that Sally was talking about is that it wasn't one linear trend of increasing complex technology. You had population aggregations, started to generate some fancy technology, and wham, the weather changes. And of course, the weather in the Paleolithic was shifting dramatically. The group spreads out, technology gets bad again. Another group over here in a different part of Acre gets some fancy technology, gets a big population, they're building institutions, they're sharing information, wham, the weather changes, everybody scatters out, and technology disappears again. So I think it's much more of a, a uh, lots of fits and starts kind of process over a long period of time. Right. Oh, and Neanderthals may have been just as smart or smarter than me in terms of their inventiveness, but if they're adapted to a, a different kind of environment where they have a more disparate social structure, less interaction with each other, um, this, is, this, is, this is, you'd expect them to have lower technology even if they were equally good at figuring things out. All right, um, so we can, we can apply these ideas to think about specific aspects of uh, human bodies and minds. So what I've done so far is I've applied the logic of natural selection to theorize these cultural learning processes. And then these give rise spontaneously to other things in the world, which then shape our cognition. So the first one I'm going to talk about is fire and cooking. And, and I'm going to make the argument that fire and cooking are culturally transmitted. We know at least in anatomy, in, in us, uh, nobody, if I were to drop you all into the Aturi forest and you had to start a fire, probably most of you would fail. There's no module that fires up despite the importance of fire over human evolutionary history that tells you how to start a fire. If you know how to start a fire, you probably learned it from somebody else. Uh, same goes for cooking. And I think there's convincing evidence that these things affected the lengths of our guts, the sizes of our stomach, and uh, our interest in fire. I'm, I'm taking these from Richard Rangan's recent effort. Um, folk biological knowledge. So the same process I described is going to create an ever-growing body of information about plants and animals. And individuals who can best categorize, store, and use, make uh, category-based induction with that information are going to be favored. So it seems like you have this constant pressure for an organizing framework. And there's a work from cognitive science suggesting that humans have a reliably developing folk biological cognition. So this is a piece of cognition that allows them to readily acquire information about animals build a hierarchical taxonomy with taxonomic inheritance. So if you learn something about birds, you can immediately send it to uh, all kinds of other animals. It just makes efficient use of the information. It's the kind of thing that you'd need if you had this growing body of information you had to keep stored and organized. And artifacts, I'm going to say a little bit more about these later, so I'm not going to say too much here. But we have the emergence of these tools. And then our bodies are going to adapt to the presence of the tools. So our dexterity is probably going to get better. Humans can thread a needle. Non-human primates can't, as far as I know. Um, uh, Ron's will have the chimps out there. Come on, you get it through that hole. <laughs> I'll, I'll get them through. <laughs> OK. Um, so, not, so we seem to readily put artifacts into a category. We have a category for artifacts. We distinguish that from non-living kinds. We distinguish that from living kinds, from people. We have what Pascal has called an intuitive ontology. And then we apply specialized cognition to artifacts. We have a functional stance. With artifacts, we're concerned what's it for. With animals, we're concerned about what it is. Um, 
Yeah, so we, we have different ways of thinking about it immediately. And this also is going to help us explain a pattern that's been much talked about recently in developmental psychology called overimitation, which I'll say more about later. Um, uneven distribution of knowledge. So surely in, in lots of species, there's an uneven distribution of knowledge. Some animals might be no more about food finding than other animals. But once you can acquire information culturally, now these, uh, these most informed, most knowledgeable individuals are a valuable resource. And Francisco Gil White and I have argued that this leads to two separate kinds of status. There's the kind of status that individuals have through controlling force and force threat. This leads to fear and subordinates and a desire to be away from. But this other kind of status, individuals want to be near the high prestigious individual. They want to look at them, learn from them. It's a completely different ethological pattern. And there's work in psychology suggesting there's two kinds of pride. So this is independent of, so the, the, this prestige and dominance is my work. And then we have Dress Tracy at Davis, now at UBC, studying pride. And, and she, they were trying to, they thought they were studying one pride. They kept doing all this work and it turned out there's two prides. They labeled them hubristic pride and authentic pride. And Jess Tracy and I have just done a series of work showing that uh, hubristic pride is the pride associated with dominance. It's when you control force and force threat and you bend others to your will. And authentic pride is that pride you feel with accomplishment, when you are esteemed in the eyes of others as a consequence of what they believe you know. Um, and these diff there's different ethologies. So even something as basic as human status, you can't theorize without thinking about gene culture coevolution. It's going to be one of my points. Uh, norms. So in a few minutes, if I have the time, I'm going to argue that culture spontaneously gives rise to norms. These are self-reinforcing equilibria. Now our minds have to adapt to a world with these self-reinforcing equilibria. So it gives rise to a norm psychology. And then finally, I won't have time to say much about this, but, but early on, Boyd and Richardson and, and Richard McElrath did a bunch of work showing that culture will give spontaneous rise to norm groups that are, have symbolic markers, so something like dialect or dress. And that if you then let genes flow in the wake, so culture constructs a world with ethnic groups, and then genes respond to that by constructing a mind that preferentially interacts with those who share your same marker and imitates those who share your same marker. And recent work in developmental psychology, as I mentioned, shows just that on, with using dialect. Uh, so I'm going to talk about, hopefully, the three things in the boxes. Uh, and this is just my point that, that these are, seem to be pretty basic areas of cognition. We got emotion, we got status, we got artifacts, we got physiology. All you, at least you get a hypothesis that you get, should, should be allowed to compete with the canonical versions of evolutionary psychology. Okay, so uh, this is an old idea. So 1995, Wheeler and ILO um, take note of the fact, pretty interesting fact, that here's the observed uh, weights of our different organs. So heart, kidney, liver, gut, brain. And these are the, the size as the, as the relative weight. And then here's the expected, um, based on a primate of our brain size using the kinds of uh, measures that we've been talking about over the last two days. And so you'll notice that the brain's much bigger and the gut's much smaller. So this suggests this idea, which I think we've heard, that there's been this energy diversion. So we got smaller guts, we eat high quality diets, um, and this allows us to free up energy to make a larger brain. That, that all feels fine to me, and I, I like this idea a lot. But it never, I've never felt like there was an engine to this idea. Why did we suddenly get access to a higher, higher quality diet? It needs something to kick in and, and drive that. And so Richard Rangham has recently suggested that it's fire, but why did we suddenly get fire? And so my idea is that what we really got is a whole bunch of cultural products. So we're fire is culturally transmitted, cooking, we got cutting tools, we got food processing. So hunter-gatherers, uh, a lot of the foods they, they acquire have toxins, and these foods have to be processed until you can make use of the valuable nutrients 
once you remove the toxins. So California Indians were heavily dependent on acorns, for example, but you had to leach the cyanide out of acorns. Uh, so we have extractive and hunting tools and, and lots of plant knowledge. It's this cultural stuff that gives us access to all this nutrient-rich foods. Once we get that, or imagine this is an iterative process, once we get that, uh, then we can shorten our small intestines. The, long intest or the large intestine is, is not touched. Uh, smaller teeth, we have cutting tools, we're cooking the food, making it soft, uh, smaller gape, and uh, smaller stomachs. So we just basically invest less in our guts and in our teeth and divert the energy to our brain. So now we can have some energy to build brains. But what freed it up was all this culturally transmitted stuff. Uh, and uh, we also get this content bias. So, so as a forager, you have to learn how to control fire. Most animals are afraid of fire, but kids seek out fire and they want to play with it. And I've watched this happen in many a small scale society. They like to run around at night waving flaming sticks around. Uh, so, so anyway, they're interested in fire and then once they learn how to control it, then they're not interested anymore. <laughs> All right, uh, so I wanted to say a little bit about the, uh, uh, so that was the brief, brief bit on um, fire. Uh, so this is about artifacts. So I think there's some reason to believe there's been co-evolution with the artifacts in our manual dexterity. I mentioned my, my, my needle threading example. Uh, I mentioned the intuitive ontology in our functional stance. But I think most interesting, for me anyway, is the tendency for over-imitation. So the idea is that why, why do humans over-imitate? Uh, what I mean by over-imitation is that if you give kids a complex set of tasks they have to do to say get it a, a candy inside of a, a artificial fruit or a box, and they'll, they'll do all the steps that they're shown, and they'll even do the unnecessary steps. And even if the step looks pretty obviously unnecessary, the kids do it. In comparative work with, with non-human primates, the primates, or with the chimps, perform a lot better. They drop out the unnecessary step and still get the fruit. So the chimp outperforms the kid. But the, the over-imitation of this kind makes good sense if our minds and our adaptive, our imitative abilities evolved in a world where there were lots of complex tools. So you take any sufficiently complex process like making kung arrow poison, and there's lots of steps where it's not clear why you would do that. Maybe we should, it seems hard, we could just drop it out. Or if you're processing a, a food with some toxin in it, many of the times you can eat these toxic foods and you don't get immediately sick. The toxin builds up over a long period of time. So why do all that labor? We can just eat the food, I feel fine. Uh, but you've gotta learn to stick to all the steps and leach the acorns long enough and do the extra step that makes the poison actually effective for the kung arrow poison. And if you drop it out, you end up with a, a less effective tool. Um, and even a moderate number of steps gives you a combinatorial explosion, and dropping out steps doing this kind of trial and error process is extremely costly. So the thing to do is to pay attention and do it the way the model does it. Once you master it, you can play around with it a bit, but you're not gonna be able to test all the possibilities once you get any sufficiently complicated technology. So this uh, uh, over-imitation makes good adaptive sense. Um, this is a great paper. I really like this paper a lot in PNAS by Lyons and his collaborators. Uh, Frank Kyle, too, I think, was on it. And they had the kids operating this various contraptions that they had to try to get a, a desirable item that was in the center of the item. And they would include various kinds of unnecessary interactions. And the videos on this are great. Um, the data is very strong, of course, uh, showing that the kids al almost always do the unnecessary action. And they did lots of various controls trying to get the kids to not do the action because there's been ideas out there that the kids are playing some kind of game or they're involved in some kind of scripted scenario. So in this particular graph, the gray and the black are, the experimenter says to the subject, do not do any unnecessary actions. And then the kid does the unnecessary actions with, with no difference uh, in the two. 
And they do other ones where the experimenter leaves the room and then asks the kid to get the item when the experimenter is not in the room. And the kid has to go through the series of steps to get the item out and run and give it to the experimenter. And he does the unnecessary step. Um, so the, the evidence is, is very nice uh, for overimplementation. So this selection pressure, I'm arguing, so cultural, uh, cultural uh, uh, human of cultural evolution builds up this useful stuff. There's this constant pressure to make bigger brains that are more better at storing and organizing, packing all this information in. But of course, we hit the stops, right? There's only so many things natural selection can do uh, in terms of the phys physicality of our brain because of the pelvis and these other constraints. So what does it do? Well, division of labor by sex. I, people, um, three, three minutes? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, definitely long-winded. So. Yeah, I was supposed to be chiming in. Um, uh, okay, well, this is, this is a worthwhile point. Um, <laughs> the uh, natural selection, it can't, it, can't, uh, it can't make our brains any bigger. So what does it do? It, store, it divides the information amongst the sexes. Females know one set of stuff. Of course, they have overlapping knowledge with males. Males know another set of stuff. A colleague asked me the other day how much I pay for my child's kindergarten fees. And I said, I store that information in my wife's head. So, uh, uh, and then you can continue this process, right? So you can have perhaps specialization. You store the information amongst the group as the information continues to get, and these things become more intensive. Division of labor among social groups, that's the kind of stuff Matt was talking about. And then we start getting external storage devices. So narratives, writing, pictures, accounting system. This is all downloading stuff from our brains that we can't fit into all these other culturally evolved sources for storing cultural information. And then computers, books, website. It just goes on, right? Uh, so this same process has continued and, and organizes our world. I won't have time to talk about norms, so I'll just summarize it in one minute. Uh, I, I, I can do it. Um, so the logic is exactly the same uh, in that norms are like artifacts in that they, they uh, are something that emerges in the world as a consequence of cultural evolution. The only difference is here, and the main tool here is cultural evolutionary game theory. We take what we know about human social learning, we put it in a game theory model, which means we allow individuals to interact and then learn from each other. And this goes on and we say, well, what happens? Well, what happens is you get all kinds of different equilibria, which means you get these stable self-reinforcing states. And this can stabilize large-scale cooperation. It can stabilize uh, norms for all kinds of things, food taboos, whatever you want. It can even stabilize maladaptive things. And so that gives you all kinds of different equilibria, which can then compete with each other. So groups that happen to have the group beneficial norms outcompete the other groups and spread at the expense of those other groups. This leads to a proliferation of increasingly pro-social norms. And then genetic evolution goes, and it has to adapt our minds to, one, a world with social rules. If you violate the rules, there's some kind of reputation or punishment-based sanctioning, something. You don't get signaling benefits. There's all kinds of ways to turn this trick. Um, so that's going to favor not only uh, having a norm psychology, but having uh, more pro-social psychology, because the world is being changed as cultural group selection increasingly favors pro-social norms. Uh, now, Mel the other night accused me of, of not taking seriously the dark side of human nature. And I just wanted to point out that in, in the case of uh, cultural group selection, the kinds of norms are, you know, be nice and cooperate with your in-group, but kill the guys in the next valley, because uh, it's this, this competition process that spreads these beliefs. Uh, and I can stop there. Thank you. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.